How are we? Good? I'm glad you're here. Where were you last weekend? Man, what a crazy weekend. That's now twice, two Sundays this year that we've had to cancel uh, because of snowpocalypse. And uh, I always enjoy the snow, but I'm very grateful that it's gone, right? Uh, it's, it's fun for a day or two, and you're like, all right, enough of this. Uh, but I'm glad you're here. We're in this series called The Arrival and talking about what it means to really think through the arrival of Jesus, to really live in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Because we're in this period that we now call the Advent, where we're looking forward to his coming. And, and in a church calendar year, it's the four Sundays leading up to, four Sundays in December, leaving, leading up to Christmas Eve, where we think about and, and really kind of slow down to meditate on the fact that Christ is coming again. As we look forward to the fact of celebrating his first coming, we are expecting him to return again. And so we're talking about what does it mean for us to live in light of that. So if you have a Bible, we're going to continue that today. Open it up to Romans chapter 15. That's where we're going to hang out. We're going to be there for a while. Then go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the book right next to Romans. Uh, so you can go ahead and be opening that up. And while you're doing that, pray with me before we jump in. Father, I thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. I pray, God, as we open it today, that you would open our eyes, open our ears to hear and to see and to understand the truth in it. And God, help us to live in light of it. Give us the faith that we need to believe you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans chapter 15, we're going to be in verse 8. We'll work our way down to verse 13. We're going to learn another really important principle for us to live out in light of Advent, in light of the arrival of Jesus, knowing that the coming of Jesus is coming. So let's look at this. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse eight, Paul says this, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Let's stop there for a second. Paul's talking about the very first time Christ came. He came as a servant to the circumcised. Now that's a reference to Abraham and the covenant that God made with him that brought about the nation of Israel, the people of God all throughout the Old Testament. And so what Paul's saying here is Christ came as a servant to the Jews. He came as a servant. Isaiah saw him as the suffering servant. And that word there, servant, is the Greek word diakonos. It's where we get our English word deacon. And so a deacon in the church is a servant, someone who serves. And so Christ came to serve the Jewish people in order to uh, show God's truthfulness. He says that all throughout the Old Testament, all these promises were made that the Messiah would come and do these things. And so the, the Old Testament looked forward to the suffering servant and also the conquering king. Now, the confusion a lot in a Jewish mindset is the, the Old Testament looked at both of those, and, 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 and now Jewish people don't believe those were two separate events. And so they're still waiting for the coming Messiah, but we believe that that, that was Jesus, that he came the first time, the first coming, the first advent, and he's going to come again. And in that first coming, Paul says he came as a servant to the Jewish people, but not just for the Jewish people. He also came for the Gentiles. Now the word there, Gentile, just means non-Jew, but the Greek word is ethnos. It's where we get our English word, ethnicities. And so literally what Paul's saying is Jesus came not just for one group of people, but for all groups of people. 
He came for all groups. That's the vision that John had in the book of Revelation when he had this vision where he saw people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's not nation so much by the way we define them today, by borders and those kinds of things, but he's talking about different ethnocentric linguistic groups. And so Christ came so that all groups might know the mercy of God, might know that God loves them. And then he gives us some of those Old Testament promises. So look at this in verse nine. He says, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10, I love this phrase. And again, you're gonna see it two more times. It is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Verse 12, and what? Again, that was good, man. 11:15, great job. I'd like for you to call and respond. All right. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Verse 13, here's the main verse I want us to focus in on. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So Paul before he talks about this hope that we have, he's giving us the backstory. Because most of us, if not all of us here, would fall into that Gentile category, unless you are ethnically Jewish. And so what he's talking about was when Christ came to the Jewish people, he came to save them, but not just them, but all people. And so since we're in that category, we now have the reason to hope that all the Old Testament promises have been fulfilled in Christ and now they apply to us. Now because of Christ, he came as a servant and to bring in literally people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation so that we might receive mercy. And then he gives us these Old Testament promises, these Old Testament references. He says, as it is written. And then he quotes different parts of the Old Testament. And then he says, and again, and again, and again. And those are just a few of the promises. There are hundreds of promises that Christ fulfilled. And, and so Paul's doing this all for one reason. He's doing this to show us now in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, that if we believe Christ, we have the most reason to hope. He wants us to abound in hope. Now let's break down verse 13. I love how he says... May the God of hope. See, our God, literally his characteristic is hope. He's the God of hope. First John calls him love. He is love. So he's the God of love. This phrase here of hope is written in such a way in the Greek where it's called the genitive. And that case of a noun is, is said to qualify or, or give a characteristic of the subject. So God is the subject. He's the subject of the sentence. And this of hope is describing the type of subject he is, the type of God he is. It's, it's a word to, dis, to give characteristic qualities. Um, one said it's the, to show the possessor of something. So God, our God, is the possessor of hope. He is literally hope. 
Now the word hope, interestingly enough, means a confident expectation of a future event. Let me say it again, a confident expectation of a future event. Would you say that God is confident of future events? Future, you know, expectations? God's never been disappointed. God has never thought, oh, I didn't know that was coming. Why? I was trying to describe this the other day to my eight-year-old daughter who knows Jesus, and, and we pray every night, or pretty much every night as a family, and, and each person will pray, and I've been trying to teach my kids that we pray to God the Father in Jesus' name, because most of the time, uh, my family, they you know, pray to Jesus. I'm like, no, we pray to God. And so I'm having this conversation with my daughter the other day when we're eating together, and, and I'm explaining to her the Trinity, you know, one God, three persons. So she's like, okay, God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all are God. And then she asked this question, where did God come from? I said, well, baby, God's always been there. And, and as best as she could in her eight-year-old mind, she was trying to get it. She's like, but, but who is this mom and dad? <laughs> baby doesn't have a mom and dad. He's always existed. There's never been a time that God was not. And you could just see it, you know, as much as she could in her eight-year-old mind. And then it was on, like, well, what's dessert? You're right. You know what I mean? Then we, we were off. But when you stop and think about that, even to a 39-year-old mind, it blows your mind, doesn't it? Because God had no beginning. No beginning. Time is a creation of God's. It's a creation of God's. How we measure time by the rotation of the planets, right? The soon, the soon, the sun and the moon. That's soon as those two put together. All right, the, the stars. I like to make fun of myself. All right, uh, you can too in your own mind, just not out loud. All right, um, but how we measure time, God created. So here's what that means, and I say this often, and I stress this often, but I want to come back. Since time is a creation of God's, then that means God is outside of time. So you got the beginning of the world, you got the end of the world, whenever that is, this heaven and earth, and everything in between, the thousands and thousands of years. God stands outside of that. So that means the past is not just something he knows about, it's somewhere he is. The present is somewhere he is, and the future is somewhere he is. He exists in all of it. So when the Bible says he's the God of hope, do you know why he is confident of future events? Because he's already there. Now, just sit with that one. I mean, it'll blow your noodle, right? I mean, you're just like, I don't know. We can forecast, we can try to look forward, but we can't know the future. But I love how the Bible describes God. He's the God of hope. Why? Because hope is a confident expectation of a future event. And there is no one more confident than God because when it comes to future events, he's already there. He's already there. So think about that. Paul is praying for that God to fill us with joy and peace. Why? Because joy and peace so often in our lives are based upon 
circumstances. I, I could say it to you like this. I just thought of this as I was talking. Joy and peace is based upon who our God is. And if our God is our finances, joy comes and joy goes, doesn't it? You got more month than money. If our, if our joy and peace, if our God is health, then we got joy and peace as long as we're healthy. Most often, our joy and our peace is based upon things we can see. We can see the stock market, our house, our car, our strength, our finances, our family, our health, all these things. And I want you to hear me say something. None of those things are bad. None of those things are bad. But there was one thing that I have learned this year, and it was a very painful lesson, that when you focus on those things, when you only see those things, they will kill your joy. And they will rob you of peace. This year and, and last year has been some of the hardest seasons in my family's life. And there was a time several months ago where my wife, who knows me better than anybody, came to me and said, Jason, you're just not yourself anymore. And, and then she said something that kind of surprised me. She said, you know, you don't sing in the shower anymore. I was like, well, I thought that was a good thing. <laughs> like, I, I didn't want to hear me. She said, yeah, I don't want to hear it. But, but I know when you're doing it that you've got joy. She said, but you haven't sung in the shower in a long time. She said, you just always look anxious and depressed and you have no joy. And, and joy is robbed when your peace is robbed. And, and I started really praying and, and thinking, and, and that's why this verse spoke to me so much is that, man, what's What's really the source of my joy and peace? Is the source of my joy and peace what I can see or what I can't see? See, Paul says this unique phrase here. He says, joy and peace in believing. In believing. That word there, in, is a preposition of means. What that means is the way that peace and joy come is through the means of belief. Well, belief, the Bible tells us, is in things we can't see. It doesn't take any belief when we can see it. So belief, or we might say faith, is believing in what we can't see. Hoping in what we can't see. And so what I was so convicted of is, listen, even though this has been a tough year, even though things definitely didn't go the way I wanted them to go, I still have God. And this God that I have, or better yet has me, is the God of hope. And so I need to put my belief, my faith, my trust, and not in what I can see, but what I can't see, which is God. And I love how Paul says this. He says, in believing. So 
When we talk about belief, when we talk about sin, our greatest problem, our greatest problem, our, our pastors, several of our pastors were at this pastor's gathering last Thursday morning, and there's a couple pastor mentor friends of mine that have been great to me over the years, and I wanted our, uh, our staff, our pastors to go, and, and, and I told them before it happened, I said, listen, guys, I'm telling you, this guy, name's Chip, he's, I call him Yoda. He's just brilliant, just sit back and take notes. And, and after it was over, they all just looked at me like, wow. I'm like, I told you, man. But, but here's one of the phrases that he said, and I'm gonna give him credit because I didn't say it, I ain't this smart. But here's what he said. He said, sin is not our greatest problem. Now think about that, because we talk a lot about sin. Sin's a problem, it separates us from God. But then he said this, he said, sin's not your greatest problem, unbelief is. He said, unbelief is your greatest problem. And then he went on to, Pack, unpack that. And here's what I thought of. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, original sin, when that came into the world, when they disobeyed God, what was behind their disobedience? Disbelief. Why? Because God told them, I've given you all this stuff. You can enjoy it all, but don't have that one thing. Because if you have that one thing, you will surely die. Then the serpent comes along, Right? You're not going to die. I think this is how Satan starts his temptations. Well, like if you ever have that thought, that ain't from the Lord. The Lord starts it off with, it is written. Satan starts it off with, well, is that really what he said? Is that really for real? You're not going to die. And in that moment, Eve believed the word of the devil over the word of God. See, hear me. The attack of the devil is always an attack on the word of God. Always. That's why when God walked in in chapter three and God says, where are you? And Adam says, we were naked, felt ashamed, so we hid all three Great human problems right there. Isolation, fear, shame. And then God says back to him, who told you that? Who told you that? See, it was their belief in Satan and their unbelief in God. They believed the words of the wrong person. See, our greatest problem is not sin. It's unbelief. And here's what Paul is saying. The God of hope wants to fill us with joy and peace. Do you believe that? Let me ask you a question. Do you live like you believe that? Not as many on that one, right? Why? Because a lot of us see God as this kind of cosmic killjoy. A lot of us see God as all of his promises and all of his expectations and all of his commands. It just, he's just so oppressing to us. It's exactly how Adam and Eve felt. Man, life would be great if this God wasn't over us. If we could just do what we want, eat this. See, God wants to fill us with joy and peace. The problem with us is God is far better than we believe. Far better. 
I wanted to say far gooder. That's just not good English, but he says joy and peace in believing, through believing, by the means of believing. We so struggle with unbelief. This is why I love one of the guys that came to Jesus. And Jesus said, if you believe, and this is his response. He says, I believe, but help my what? Unbelief. Can I just tell you something? That's probably the greatest prayer you could pray. I believe God, but help my unbelief. Because if I got unbelief, I don't really believe. And I could just give you lip service and say, yeah, I believe, but I don't really believe. You know what I have found in my own life? It's actually far better of a relationship when you're honest. You found that to be true yet? If you haven't, we got divorce care and grief care and all kinds of stuff. Recovery. When you're honest, relationships go better. Think about it like this. God came to start a relationship with us through Christ. So our relationship with God will go better if we're honest with him. If we say things like the guy said to Jesus, I believe, but help me because I don't believe. Like, is this dude schizophrenic? No, he's human. Something shifted in me years ago when I started praying um, honest prayers. I used to pray like, God, I love you. I believe you, right? I just kind of trying to think of all the things he wants me to say. And then I started praying, God, I I don't love you. God, I really want to sin right now. Now that's scary when you're saying that to a holy God. I really want to disobey you right now. But then I love what Paul says, in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the good news about God, when I say he's far better, he's far gooder, is God never gives you a command or me a command that he doesn't expect himself to empower. When God gives you a command, he's also going to give you the grace to obey it. The problem so often is we try to obey the command without asking, without asking to be filled, without asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. So when I'm talking about being honest before God, what I'm saying is say to God, God, I I really want to love you, but I don't right now. I really want to believe you, but I don't right now. So I need you to help my unbelief. I really want to love people, God, but I hate them right now. What we see here is Paul giving us insight into how we're filled with joy and peace. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that word there, power, is the Greek word dynamos. It's where we get our English word dynamite. And what does dynamite do? Blows stuff up, right? So think about it like this. When he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, what he's saying is, by the blowing up of the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit wants to do with your heart? In the Old Testament, God talked about taking out the heart of stone, the heart of, that didn't love him and putting in a new heart, heart surgery. What we're talking about here is the Holy Spirit wants to blow up in our heart. The Holy Spirit wants to give us what we don't have and blow up what we did have. He wants to remove the old and put in the new. 
And this is why this is such good news. It's because Paul is praying for this to happen. He wants them to be filled with joy and peace by the God of hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when I'm talking about being honest, what I'm saying is you're begging God to do just that. God, would you blow up my heart? God, I'm really struggling serving my spouse right now. Would you blow up my heart? Would you give me a new heart? Would you give me new desires? Because I don't believe you. See, every sin, the power of sin is the promise of sin. See, what got Eve was the promise that she would be like God. That's what got her. I want to be like God. So you want to kill the power of sin? Cut off the promise. Cut off the the head of the promise. When sin comes to you, when Satan comes to you and tempts you to do something that God says not to do, you have to ask, okay, what's the promise? What's the promise underneath this power? If I can deal with that, that's the area of belief. If I can cut off the head of unbelief, then I will struggle less and less with sin. Now we gotta move on. But I want you to understand this point. If Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect, sinless life, died a sinner's death, rose again, then we have the most reason of any people on the planet to never lose hope. And what is that hope? That if I keep believing that the Holy Spirit will do just that, and even in my unbelief, I'm praying and ask him to help me believe more. See, Christians, we, because Christ came, we have factual evidence that he came and he'll come again. And the reason we believe that he'll come again is because we have factual evidence he came the first time. So if he wasn't lying the first time, he won't be lying the second time. And if that's true, then we have the most reason to hope over any person on the planet. The God of hope fill you with joy and peace and believing. See, what I realized was I was believing in what I could see and not believing in what I could see. And then God showed me, Jason, if you've got me, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter what kind of year you've had. You have every reason to abound in hope. Now think about that. When I think of the word abound, I think of like Peter Cottontail, like right here, just the rabbit kind of bounding through the forest. I think that's the song. Probably should have looked these things up before I get up here. Um, it's not what the word means. The word means to be full. Um, I love this phrase, beyond the norm. Christians should have hope beyond the norm. Why? Because Jesus is coming. Let me give you my point and we'll unpack it as we look at 1 Corinthians 15. Here's my point. Knowing the arrival of Jesus is coming, abound in hope. Knowing the arrival of Jesus is coming, knowing that, abound in hope. Beyond the norm, I'll say it to you like this, beyond what you have reason that you can see to hope. Because the God of hope 
The God of hope is certain of future events. And if he's your God, you don't have to know the events if you know him. Do you know him? You have every reason for joy and peace and hope in believing. See, I think this is probably one of the best messages that a Christian could hear in 21st century. Because as Christians, our faith needs to remind our face that we have hope. We have hope. And I'm not talking about coming to church with that kind of trite Christianese. How are you, brother? I'm good, brother. Great, brother. Everything's good, brother. No, I'm not, I'm not talking about that kind of superficial kind of joy where you see bad things as good things. No, bad things are bad things. It's okay to grieve them. Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus felt forsaken even though he knew he wasn't. And so it's okay to be human. It's okay to be honest. I'm not saying don't feel. See, being Christian doesn't make you less human. It makes you more. Because you and I have every reason now to be the most honest. God, I'm really struggling here. I don't get it. I don't understand. What are you doing? But I want you to understand something. Feeling helpless is completely different than feeling hopeless. It's okay to feel helpless. It's never okay to feel hopeless. Why? Because we know the end. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. Let me tell you what I mean by this. One book over, 1 Corinthians 15. Towards the end of the chapter, starting in verse 51. You're going to see, hopefully, some similarities between the two. Same guy wrote them to different groups, but being the same guy, you have similar themes. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, listen to what Paul says. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed, or we shall be changed. He goes on, look at verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, again, referring back to the Old Testament, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying there? Is there ever a more helpless feeling than death? There's not. Death comes for us all. Death and taxes, right? That's the two things you can be certain of. Death comes for us all. And, and please understand me, because I think a lot of times people think that we're not healed because we don't have enough faith. And I want you to understand something. That can really hurt people if we kind of take that mentality. Oh, you would have been healed had you had more faith. I think we can really damage people. Because I want you to understand something. Even if God did heal you, you'd still die. Every person that Jesus healed still died. So why did he heal people? He healed people physically to show that he had the power to heal them spiritually. It was a foretaste of what he was going to do with his own death. 
What is Jesus saying when he heals somebody? He's saying death and sickness doesn't have power over me. So, he, so here's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians. I want you to get this. There's nothing more helpless than death. Feeling like you can do nothing to stop it because you can't. You can Botox all you want. You're still going to die. Right? You may not have wrinkles, but you'd be dead. But hear me, and I'm not trying to be trite or even funny, even though that just happens naturally sometimes. Here's what I'm saying to you. How does a Christian face death? Honestly and hopefully. Christians die differently. Why? Because Christian know, Christians know death doesn't have the final word. See, this verse is read a lot of times during a funeral service, especially at the graveside. I've done it before. And I gotta be honest with you, it's a little bit of a weird, ironic time to read it. Because you're reading, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? And the mourning family's like, right there. Right there, there's his victory. But why do we read it? We read it to remind ourselves of the hope we have. That that ain't the end. Christ was the first fruits from the dead. What that means is he was the first of a lot of other fruits coming. Which would be you and I in believing if we believe the God of hope, he will fill us with all joy and peace so that we may abound in hope. And when you abound in hope, in the God of hope, then death can't even rob your hope. Death can't even take it from you. And yet, there's nothing more final than death, but you know what takes us from us? Debt. Like debt takes your hope from you. Takes your joy and your peace. Again, I'm not saying as Christians we should walk around with a superficial joy. It's okay to grieve. But even as Paul said in Corinthians, you're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Why? Because you have hope. If hope dies, you got nothing. So here's what I'm saying to us as Christians. As Christians, we have the most reason to hope. We have the most reason to never give up, to never quit, to fight to the end, to pray to the end, to serve to the end. Why? Because we know how it ends. Death's an upgrade, man. I'm getting Jason 2.0 after this. This is awesome. So guess what? Up until my dying breath, I will keep at it. So I love great preachers of old. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon. They told him, you need to quit preaching or you're going to die. So he doubled it up and preached twice as much and died when he was 55. Was that dying young? I don't know. You tell me, but he died fruitful. Why? Because he had hope. I hope the Lord lets me preach till I'm, you know, 80 or you tired of me. I don't know. But you know what I'm never going to do? Never going to give up preaching. Never going to give up working. Never going to get up trying. Never going to give up. Why? Because Christ got up. 
So since he got up, I'm not gonna give up. Look at this last verse. We gotta go, man. I gotta keep you here all day. Verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore. Now, if you've ever heard me preach this, when you see the word therefore, what do you say? What's it there for? Right? Hermeneutics 101. When you see the therefore, it's there for a reason. So you're asking yourself, what's it there for? And so to understand verse 58, you have to go back to verse 51, which is why I started there. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, since death doesn't get the last word, since death doesn't have the victory, since death belongs to the power of God, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Steadfast and immovable. Steadfast and immovable in what? In hope. Be steadfast and immovable. You know what that means? You say to your circumstances, circumstances, you're horrible, but I need you to know my hope. Just because I got cancer, just because she left, just because I lost it all, just because whatever, I'm immovable. Because my God is immovable. And then he says, I love it. He says this, always abounding. That word abound in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is the exact same word as Romans 15, 13 abound in hope, abound in work. You want to know how you haven't given up hope? You haven't given up trying. Abound in hope, abound in work, inseparably connected. You're not giving up. See, hopeful people make plans. Hopeful people strategize. People full of hope they don't give up. They keep loving their spouse even when their spouse isn't loving them back. They keep serving. They keep believing. They keep showing up. The most hopeful people we have here in this church are those who come to serve. Why in the world would somebody get up at six o'clock and come out in the freezing cold and put out parking lot signs? Why would they do that? Because they're hopeful that God's gonna move in somebody's life. See, my hope is displayed or proven in my work. Being a person of vision and strategy shows, if it's rooted in who God is and what God wants to do, shows that I have hope of a better life. And what a great message for us to hear in a turbulent time. See, as Christians, we get so tied up in politics and world events. Can I just tell you something? God's going to take and remove people of power as he sees fit. I ain't got to worry about that. I ain't got to worry about who's the president or who's not the president. If we would spend at half the amount of energy in church as we do on politics, maybe Jesus would already be here. Now, listen, I'm not saying don't vote. Pray and vote your values. Yes and Amen. Thank God that we live in a democracy and people defend that. But, but what I'm saying is this, there's something beyond what I can see. And that's what we're working for. So as a church, we should thank God that we're a part of a church with a vision to reach people, to see lives changed, to see disciples made. 
It, it bugs me when people get saved and then they get complacent. And we're like, don't, don't we have enough people? No. Aren't you glad we didn't stop before God reached you? And now that you're here, you think we can fold up and go home? No. But, but I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me. This is not about a big church. This is about a smaller hell. The point is not them being a part of Revolution Church. The point is about them being a part of the kingdom. That's why we want to plant new churches. But, but hear me, if we don't have a vision like that, then we have all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, are the most to be pitied. Because when you have no hope, you don't make plans, you don't strategize. So listen, man, we're making plans. We're making strategies as we end out 2017, look forward to 2018. Why? Because people need to know this hope that we have. And I want to hear, I want you to hear me. The most attracting thing you can give people is not a memorization of the Romans road. It's joy. You just take joy to your office and you see what God does. You take some hope and some peace in your home and you just see what God does. When your world falls apart and people are like, how are you holding it together? Man, I got hope beyond this life. I think the defining characteristic of Christians should be joy, peace, love. It's almost like it's called the fruit of the spirit or something. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can have an honest conversation. I thank you for the trials and tribulations in my own life to blow up my heart to realize that it's so easy to hope in the wrong things. It's so easy to hope in what we can see our finances, our future, our health. But God, things happen. And, and I know in a church our size that there's a lot of those things happening. And I so wanted to preach this message today, God, not to, to give guilt, but give hope. To tell people, don't give up. Because even though we die, we win. And if that's true, God, we can, we can keep working all the way up to death. And, I, and I'm not just talking about a job. I'm talking about working for you. The work of the Lord, Paul said. Because we know that our work is not in vain. So God, I pray for our church that we would continue to have hope and plan and strategize. And if they don't go the way we plan and strategize, we'll regroup and hope and plan and strategize again because we got the God of hope. And I pray for marriages and families and kids and jobs and businesses for us to leverage those things as tools to share the hope that we have. 
And God, I pray for anybody that doesn't have the hope of Jesus, that you would save them. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. Please give me a moment. Let me ask you an honest question. Where's your hope? If your hope is not in Christ, then death does win. The reason why we're so passionate about Jesus as the only way, because there is no other person who lived and died and rose again never to die. No other founder of any other faith movement can claim that. Jesus stands alone. And we don't say that to be insensitive. We say that to be truthful so that you can know that a faith in any other person doesn't beat death. So if you don't know Jesus, you don't have the hope. But you can. If you'll trust him, if you'll believe. So right there where you are, if you want to trust Christ, whether you're in the house or watching online or listening, if you want to trust Christ for the first time, I want you to pray with me. It goes like this. Say, God, thank you for loving me. That you sent Jesus in my place for my sin. I give you my life. I ask you to forgive me. Save me. Fill me with joy and peace and hope. Nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed that with me, I want you to do one thing for me. Would you just let us know? We want to celebrate with you. And the easiest way to do that, just simply where you are again, nobody looking around or talking. If you just lift up your hand and let us know that you trusted Christ, thank you. Thank you. Just lift it up. Lift it up. Thank you. We got some men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put your hand down. But then for those of us who know Jesus, I want you to understand today, you may be going through the worst circumstances of your life. And this message doesn't mean you can't be honest about that. Be honest, grieve, mourn. But Paul says, we don't mourn as those with no hope. So know that whatever you're grieving, whatever you're mourning over, that this isn't the end. That Christ will come and he will make all things new for your good and his glory. Believe that. Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, real quick before we get out of here, let's give it up for those who just trusted Christ, man. So, so great. We want to help you. That's why we give you that bag. And, and there's some next steps in there. If you please take those, let us know who you are. That'd be fantastic. And as always, we got men and women gonna be down front after our service is over, call a response team. They'd love to pray with you, talk with you. Maybe that's your prayer. You come up and say, I believe, but help my unbelief. And we'll pray, we'll join together with you for that. Make sure when you leave, you get those Christmas invites. Next weekend's different service. We've got two on Saturday night. 
So if you can come Saturday night, that'd be great. Makes room for Sunday morning. Then our normal service time, Sunday morning here in Canton, two in Jasper on Sunday, next Sunday as well. We love you guys. We'll see you then.